tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny in All That Air. My name is Lynn Lockwood and I'm Deputy Chair of the Philip Larkin Society. This episode is about Larkin the Librarian and it was largely researched and planned by my two fantastic guests, Julian Henry and Dr Chris Fletcher. Philip Larkin was a librarian for 42 years. He had no formal training when he set off. He chose the career on the spur of a moment as a 21-year-old after leaving university, like many students, without a career in mind. There's nothing unusual in a poet or writer having a day job to pay the bills. Thomas Hardy was an architect. Caroline Duffy is Creative Director of Writing at Manchester. But Larkin was critical of his profession in his correspondence from time to time. Work is a kind of vacuum and emptiness, he wrote to Monica Jones, when he arrived in Hull as a new librarian. And he often dramatised his circumstances in his letters for effect. But there's no doubt he found purpose in the job beyond the monthly paycheck. We start with Chris and Julian introducing themselves. Hello, I'm uh, Chris Fletcher. I'm Keeper of Special Collections at the, the Bodleian uh, in Oxford. And uh, I'm also a trustee of the Philip Larkin Society. Okay, and I'm Julian Henry. I'm a, um, a trustee of the Philip Larkin Society. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in Larkin the poet, obviously, but as well as that, I'm very interested in Larkin the librarian and the fact that he managed to maintain a kind of double life, a dual existence for over 40 years. So, Chris is a, a very welcome guest on on this as a as a librarian. So, um, Chris, could you talk, maybe give us an introduction, a sort of sense as to what um, being a librarian, what sort of mindset you need to be a librarian, what sort of person makes a great librarian? Yeah, F- Philip Larkin said that uh, the role appealed to him because it mixed just the right amount of uh, academic knowledge uh, with administration and practical aspects of doing things. And uh, that's certainly what I find satisfying. Uh, You have to have a a subject knowledge, you have to be interested in literature and books, the content, but you also have to be interested in pragmatic aspects. So the management of collections, figuring out how to make uh, readers happy, how to raise funds to acquire further things, um, aspects such as, as conservation, organising loans to other institutions. So I, I think it's that blend of the intellectual and the practical. And is it, would you describe it as, and I'm being a bit simplistic here, a social job or a solitary job? Is it is it something which you need to be able to enjoy time by yourself or is it something that's more sociable than, than something than people would expect? I think it depends. There's a great variety of roles in any library, particularly a a big one, big research library like the Bodleian. So, for example, if you're an archivist, then that requires periods of fairly intense concentration 
working on your own to organize a, a collection of papers. However, um, if you're a reader services librarian, uh, your role actually involves constant interaction with, with, with people. So I think there's really no such thing as uh, a one-size-fits-all librarian. There are all sorts of aspects to the work. And I think Larkin himself, in his, his first job, um, some of that was spent cataloging, which is fairly solitary. Um, mm. Some of it was spent serving readers uh, and so on and so forth. So um, d different, different library roles uh, carry with them different levels of, of solitude or otherwise. But I don't think any librarian, uh, even if you're an archivist tackling a, a huge collection, um, I, I think there are plenty of opportunities to engage with fellow librarians, researchers, so on and so forth. And 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 you your title at the Bodleian is that you are actually the keeper, you're a keeper of a collection of a special collection. Could could you just explain what that is? What is a keeper? Well, I suppose in some respects it's quite an old-fashioned term, but still used in in museums and and research libraries. So essentially, it is to keep and to look after and to promote and develop. Uh, the library special collections. So those are things that are not, if you like, modern, regular uh, books that you'd go and buy in a shop, but things that have some element of, of rarity or age or value to them. And so you've got the kind of greatest hits under your wing, would you say? Uh, <laughs> all, books, all books are important for different purposes. So, uh, you know, an undergraduate at the university is going to be more focused on online journals or textbooks that they find in their college libraries. But if you're a researcher doing original research on, say, Philip Larkin, um, you would want to come in and use our primary uh, resources. But I, I, I mean, I can't pretend that the things we look after aren't wonderful. Uh, we have over 10,000 medieval manuscripts. Mm. We have four of the surviving Magna Carta, uh, uh, four of the um, 17 surviving Magna Carta engrossments. We have Jane Austen's first attempts at a novel. Mm. Um, so these are amazing things. That wasn't really an area that Larkin sort of delved into, really, was it, very much? I think being looking forward and, and kind of modernising and... It's a different he, kind of work that he was doing. I mean, Larkin, he he did actually, when he was the university librarian at Hull, he certainly developed uh, the special collections there. Uh, and also from the early 60s, he was very much involved in a campaign to help British institutions uh, acquire contemporary literary manuscripts, yeah. things that mm. uh, had hitherto really been going to some of the great American institutions. So he he had a strong interest. He's very forward thinking in that respect, wasn't he? In um, his essay, uh, A Neglected Responsibility, it's a really yeah, detailed account of that. He time. really he he really was, and the the issue is still a live one. It's it's not quite as contentious as it as it used to be, because I think British institutions are pulling their weight. Um, but, yeah, it, it's w when, this, 
when this issue comes up, it's still that essay by Philip Larkin that people point to. And it's a very powerful piece of writing. He called the, he called the British a nation of stable door lockers. Mm. Um, he felt that we simply weren't doing enough. And also, it, I suppose it, 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 it wasn't just about building up a contemporary record of, of writers' creative efforts um, for libraries. It, it was also a way of supporting writers you know, actually taking their archive seriously. For many writers, the archive is effectively the pension pot. Hmm. Okay, shall we go back in time to when Larkin started and just go through um, a chronology of his, how he came to become a librarian uh, and how he developed um, I think a really good source for this is an essay called My Peculiar Particular Talents by Richard Goodman, which was published in About Larkin in October 1997. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from that just to give us a steer as we follow Larkin's career. So in the summer of um, 1943, Britain was in the middle of the Second World War. Um, Philip Larkin had left St John's College, Oxford, with the first in English language and lit, but with, with no plan. He wanted to write, obviously. Um, he'd been rejected for a job in the civil service, but when flicking through a copy of the Birmingham Post and Mail, he spotted an advertisement for a librarianship at Wellington in Shropshire, and he took the job on a salary of £220 a year. When he started there in 1943, he was the sole employee of Wellington Library. He unlocked the building at nine in the morning, he stoked the boiler, lit the gas lights, and after spending the day issuing books and dealing with loan requests, as well as buying and cataloguing new books, he locked up at 8.30pm in the evening. Although he wrote dismissively that this job in Wellington was, quote, to hand out tripy novels to morons, there is no doubt that the job appealed to his desire to live amongst books. While he was at Wellington, Larkin had been busy writing, working on Girl in Winter and the poems, that were to later appear in The North Ship. He was good at the library job. Readership doubles, he wrote. Issues jumped from 3,000 to 6,000 per month. By 1946, he'd moved on to Leicester, where he'd become assistant librarian at the university. This was one of the civic universities, Reading, Nottingham, Hull, Southampton, Exeter, that were established after the Second World War to provide the population with real-world skills in professions like engineering, and at that time, Leicester had just 200 students. The college then was housed in one building, the former Leicester and Rutland County Lunatic Asylum that's today known as the Fielding Johnson Building. Larkin later wrote of his time in Leicester, I've always been grateful to the librarian, Miss Bennett, for taking a chance on what cannot have been a very promising looking candidate. It was Miss Bennett who advised her young librarian that he might do better with qualifications. And so he took his exams and qualified for the Library Association, aged 26. When Larkin moved to Belfast in 1950 to start work in the library at Queen's University, he had several poems written for what would become the less, less deceived. Larkin liked the city of Belfast and, felt, and spent five happy years as a sub-librarian, supervising 18 staff. The head librarian endorsed the young poet's thoughtfulness and organisational capabilities when he wrote that he had, quote, come increasingly to rely on Larkin's judgment. I have delegated to him rather larger areas of responsibility than normally falls to the lot of a sub-librarian. He has the ability to assess a problem, arrive at a decision and act on it without delay. 
which is not too common amongst academic administrators. Larkin left Belfast in 1955, and on, as we all know, on arrival in Hull, his career blossomed. Um, but before we talk more about Larkin's time in Hull, maybe we can ask Chris a little bit more about this, the work, um, the job of the librarian. Um, we've covered, have, is there anything else we want to say about the neglected responsibility? We touched on it um, as being an important um, paper speech that Larkin delivered. Do we want to go into that anymore, Chris? Is there anything more you want to say on that? Well, I think just to say that it it um, it resulted in a really a campaign by the Arts Council um, with Larkin much involved to 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 buy manuscripts and distribute the, uh, distribute them among uh, British libraries, and we see the legacy of that um, across the country. Uh, uh, there are a lot of things that libraries have literary manuscripts which were the result of 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 that agitation by by Larkin so it's a it's a lasting legacy do you feel um that when Larkin wrote that he sort of captured uh, the feeling of a, a lot of academic librarians at that time then because obviously he did have a, a voice and a platform at that point but that that essay can't have come out of nowhere the I presume there must have been people worrying about, not just Larkin, but, you know, people worrying about this. I, I mean, a little bit. The Friends of the Bodleian, for example, was established in 1925, and one of its early purposes was to try to capture a record of contemporary uh, creative output. So, so people had recognised it, but um, I think this was the first time there was a really joined-up uh, campaign and uh, uh, you know American libraries to their credit had spotted the value of contemporary manuscripts really before the British had and in fact it's quite interesting um, Thomas Hardy of course one of Larkin's favorite poets decided uh, towards the end of his life to distribute manuscripts among British institutions uh, the Bodleian among them and the British Museum Library and it took the British Museum trustees quite some time to decide whether it was actually appropriate to accept uh, the manuscript of mm. a living a living writer mm, mm. Um, the Bodleian was was I'm proud to say rather quicker but there was a suspicion that you really shouldn't be acquiring things from writers on whom the dust hadn't settled you know questions of of reputation and and them needing to be firmly established in the canon and of course if you hang around, if you hang around uh, too long, then your competitors overseas are going to spot the opportunities, and then you've got nothing to collect. Mm. So it's actually it's a really fascinating topic, and I think um, Larkin used his position both as a writer himself and as a very effective and influential librarian um, to, to to really affect this change. Is, is there a sort of National Librarians Association upon which someone like Larkin will have sat so that he could um, express these kind of views to other librarians and to enlist their support? Yeah, and uh, in fact, the, um, the lecture was delivered to um, a body called Sconnell, which is a, a sort of prof professional library uh, body. So, and, and he was a good committee man, um, uh, 
you know the library world is a is a very connected one um and Larkin made full use of those connections and and Sconnell Sconnell still exists I think does it not it does the other point on that on the neglected responsibility was that it create it, he was on one side of a debate and Kingsley Amis was on a different side of that debate because Amis gave his papers or, or sold his papers to Pasadena to um, an American collection. Do you have any knowledge of, of the back and forth between Amos and Larkin on that subject? I, I don't, but um, okay. Larkin oh, actually... <laughs> What's interesting is, it, you know, Larkin put his money where his mouth uh, was, and of course his diaries, he ordered them to be shredded, but he did bequeath... Um, uh, things to the Bodleian, for example, letters from Kingsley Amos, uh, Barbara Pym, and Monica Je- Jones. So uh, he was he was he was generous, and that was an important gesture. Can you talk a little bit about, from a Larkin point of view, the best of what you have in the Bod, and 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 also uh, there's some stuff which hasn't been released yet. Are you able to, t- I think some of the um, correspondence around Monica Jones hasn't been released, I, I think. Can, can you talk I a little bit about I what you've... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the question of reserving things is, is always an issue. We, Any public body has to be careful in relation to the Data Protection Act. So one of the important jobs of an archivist is actually to make uh, judgment calls on whether things are, are able to be released or not. But, you know, we wouldn't be librarians if ultimately we didn't want to make this material available. And Monica's letters to Larkin were, in fact, um, recently used by John Sutherland mm. in his in his book. Um, I mean, we have, a, I mentioned letters from Amos, Barbara Pym and Monica Jones. Uh, we also have all of Larkin's own letters to Monica Jones, which are absolutely fascinating. It's the most incredible record, um, obviously, of their relationship, but much more than that. His contemporaries, his poetic struggles. I mean, there's an absolutely wonderful letter in which he's he's writing about his struggles with an Arundel tomb. Um, a- and crucially, his his back and forth about the ending you know the famously equivocal ending and you'll you'll know of course that you know it it ends up with this very this idea of our almost instinct almost true what will survive of us is love so um and that almost that critical almost was put in very very late um so uh, there's a typescript, there's a typewritten uh, manuscript of the poem with, with Larkin's, or a, a typescript of the poem with Larkin's handwritten annotations. Absolutely fascinating. The other thing about his letters to Monica is that they were very, very fond of exchanging postcards. And I find it absolutely fascinating to look at the cards that Larkin chose to send. And in some instances, the visual elements of those postcards seem to echo or even prefigure some of his his verse and it shows what an incredibly to me what a a wonderfully visual imagination he had so for example there's one postcard which has the scene of a dutch uh, 18th 17th century dutch 
interior and it brings to mind the card players mm -hmm. there is also uh, one of larkin's very late poems long lion days uh, it, it had, had been known about from a manuscript in hull in one of his notebooks but in fact he wrote it on the back of a postcard which depicts the very scene that he's describing it's a calendar scene from a medieval manuscript that's actually in our collection and you have the the, the sowing uh, the, the the harvesting of the wheat you have a rampant lion you have the burning sky and this is what I love about manuscripts because this is a postcard that came into our collection um, some time ago uh, just after I started in fact in 2006 um, but Larkin had actually bought it from the Bodleian shop round about 1979 so you have this amazing circularity you have uh, the medieval manuscript in the Bodleian that had been there for 400 years you have a curator commissioning a series of postcards and then you have Larkin in Oxford buying them and and sending these scenes um, of calendar pages from the manuscript featuring signs of the zodiac to Monica at the appropriate uh, time throughout the year so absolutely wonderful thing that's that's um, so beautiful he does he does have that great visual imagination which um, he you know with, with the interest in the photography and his own accomplishments as a as a cartoonist you know when you look at the drawings and the doodles they're, he they're he really, really does, and, and I just I think there's more work to be done on this actually, mm. and I think there are there are some poems that are still waiting to find what I'm sure must be a corresponding image. You know, home is so sad, for example. Um, I, I I don't want to overplay this, but um, s certainly certainly he was he he was thinking of of images in in that way. Just just um, to. No, go on, sorry. Yeah, just to say other things that we have. Um, we have his correspondence with Judy Edgerton, letters from Bruce and Anne Montgomery, and we also have a small collection of, of objects, uh, medals, coins, certificates, and a silver cigarette case from 1930 inscribed with his father's initials. Um, mm. uh, and one thing, I, one collection I'm particularly fond of uh, his letters to Winifred Arnott, mm. uh, who later became Winnie Dawson, uh, who I was lucky enough to meet. And of course, she's the subject um, of the poem uh, Lines on a Young Lady's Photograph album. And I wish we had the album. That is actually at the University of Hull. Um, That's a whole. I had that in my hands a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are very lucky. I mean, what a wonderful thing. Yeah. And yes. in fact, we're we're very proud to share with Hull, you know, the world's largest collection of, of Larkin material. How did you get those those extra bits of Larkin material then? How did that come to you rather than in Hull? I can't remember the specific details, but they came through, I, I don't know, but they mm. came through a lawyer um, not so very not so very long ago, in fact. There's a, there's um, a lot the of uh, Larkinalia all over the place. Um, it would be nice if it all found a home. That's right, and um, I think I'll, I'll mention later one of my proudest exhibition loans when I worked at the British Library, which was bringing in Larkin's last lawnmower. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll definitely 
need to talk about that. <laughs> I before before we go into hall, I just wanted to come back to Monica and how the library was obviously the place that brought them together. Um, and uh, the article in uh, the about Larkin issue four, which is on the website, you can get that on our website because it's all been digitised. But there's a lovely article by Pamela Hanley who worked with as a very very young um, assistant librarian. She worked with. Philip Larkin and she she's written this quite long article about her memories and there's a there's a lovely um, description of uh, Monica she says it, uh, a young lecturer in the English department a glamorous figure with long blonde hair and flamboyant clothes he used to perch on the corner of Philip Lark Philip's desk for a chat at least once a day among the drab local girls in their cardigans clothing coupons were still needed her vivid patterned dirndl skirts and black tight-fitting sweaters accentuated a sophistication belonging to another world. She took her coffee breaks in the main hall with the students, surrounded by admiring ex-servicemen who outnumbered the few grammar school boys who'd been exempted from national service. The issue desk was a social focus and Philip was in his element. As it was so conveniently situated beside the entrance some way from where the reading alcoves began, the chat and laughter disturbed no one. And I, and I love that idea of the issue desk being that kind of place where you, you went to hang out and have a chat. And it's oh, great. yeah, abs absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, the Bodleian is full of stories of, of kindled romances. <laughs> and, you know, the Radcliffe camera, which is very popular among un undergraduates. Uh, it's, it's quite a scene. I mean, there is, there is studying going on, but <laughs> it's definitely... There's definitely a frisson. And, um, of course, Larkin in his poem, um, Poem About Oxford, refers rather unkindly, I think, to dull bodily. Um, but he was, he was obviously fond of this. And, in fact, uh, through, his, through his life, he, he came back to Oxford several times. And when he was uh, compiling his um, Oxford book of, of modern verse, uh, he used the Bodleian's collections to hunt for for obscure texts. It was quite a controversial book, but mm. um, I, th I think he was, I think he was given almost unprecedented access to the secure stack because the Bodleian, like University of Cambridge Library, uh, the British Library, and um, a few others, is a legal deposit library. It's had an entitlement to receive a free book. Uh, uh, from publishers printed in the land since 1610. So, so Larkin could really draw upon those very deep um, and often uh, rather obscure sources. So he did attempt to read pretty much everything he could for that time period, didn't he, to, to select his poems. It was a huge, huge task. Yeah, and I think I'm right in saying that some categories of those books would have been stored um, ac according to date of publication. So he was able to actually just go down the shelves mm, mm. and find what he wanted. And I'm sure there was serendipity uh, to that as much as, as him sleuthing things out mm. in particular. Mm. Yeah. So this might be a good time, Chris, to ask you to read one of your favourite Larkin poems, which... We talked about earlier as as um, wedding wind. It, this is an interesting one because um, it was one of the one of his earliest poems, 
In fact, do, do you want to introduce it? Because you probably know more about it than I do, and then maybe read it. Well, it, it is one of his early poems. It's, it's a poem that he actually recorded himself uh, reading. So he must have liked it. I like it because it's, it's in the woman's voice. Mm. Um, it's, it's deeply romantic. Uh, it's clever and it's, it's the sadness, but it's full of promise and it's very subtle. Uh, I love in particular the, the sort of suggestions, I think. Uh, I don't think I'm stretching a point. The suggestions of, of, of pregnancy at some point um, in the future. Words like born, bodying forth. And it's like uh, a lot's been said about Larkin and religion and his position on religion. But the language here is biblical language. Um, all generous waters. You know, the idea of kneeling cattle, it's, it's sublime. It, it's, I, I find there are bits of it that are different. One of the reasons I like it is that bits of it are difficult and perhaps not completely successful. You know, the metaphor of, of uh, joy my actions turn on like a thread carrying beads, um, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's tricky in parts. And of course, Larkin was um, writing a lot as as with a female voice at this time. I think I think he was he was experimenting with identity and self identity. Mm. I think is what mm. struck struck me. But I, I, the choice of writing this particular poem in a woman's voice, I think, is 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 unusual, and it gives him either even greater standing as a poet that he's able to do it so successfully. I mean, in in my mind. But anyway, Chris, do you want to read it? Okay. The wind blew all my wedding day, and my wedding night was the night of the high wind. And a stable door was banging again and again that he must go and shut it, leaving me stupid in candlelight, hearing rain, seeing my face in the twisted candlestick, yet seeing nothing. When he came back, he said the horses were restless, and I was sad that any man or beast that night should lack the happiness I had. Now in the day, all's ravelled under the sun by the wind's blowing. He has gone to look at the floods, and I carry a chip pail to the chicken run, set it down, and stare. All is the wind hunting through clouds and forests, thrashing my apron and the hanging cloths on the line. Can it be borne, this bodying forth by wind of joy my actions turn on, like a thread carrying beads? Shall I be let to sleep now this perpetual morning shares my bed? Can even death dry up these new delighted lakes, conclude our kneeling as cattle by all generous waters? Tricky to get right, actually. It, it really is. And it's that, it's that larking style of um, becoming very sort of abstract towards the end of a poem yeah. that starts off very much in the everyday. Yeah. We, we debated this at home and I said it was a rural poem uh, because of the rural themes and the hardiness of yeah, it. Yeah, very and much my, hardy. My well, my partner said, she disagreed, and she said it's about domesticity. It's not about rural, it's about domesticity. And you can, <laughs> again, another sign of a good poem that you can interpret it through so many different um, 
you know, for angles, basically. Yeah. But it's, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful poem. And I, I, when looking back at his can, I'd always thought At Grass was his best early one. But I, I, now I've gone back and looked at this again. I, I, I would put this up there. I think it's a, it's a great, great work. No, it was 47, was it, I think? Uh, 46. 46. Sorry. And, uh, yeah, so he was only about 24 and he wrote it just, just starting at Leicester, I think just that year anyway. So very, very young when he wrote it. By the time Philip Larkin arrived in Hull in 1955, the library there at the university contained 124,000 books. It had 11 staff and 720 students. Larkin threw himself into the job and presided over the growth of the library and its transformation into the building that we know today. During the next two decades, his reputation grew with the publication of the Whitson Weddings in 64 and High Windows in 74. The chairman of the Hull Library Committee wrote at the time, quote, at first I was impressed with the time Philip spent in his office, arriving early and leaving late. It was only later that I realised that his office was also his study, where he spent hours on his private writing as well as the work of the library. Then he would return home and on a good many evenings start writing again. A new purpose-built Brimmore Jones Library, named after the Vice-Chancellor, was opened in two stages in 1960 and 1970 and was designed as the heart of the university. Larkin was intimately involved with the build and its transformation with great attention to detail. Today, there are over a million books and reference materials housed in the Hull University Library, serving 16,000 students from all over the world. Larkin's immersion into the work in the Hull Library is summarised best by Andrew Motion. I'll quote from his book. In Wellington, Leicester and Belfast, Larkin had worked ably but unremarkably. Now he became his father's son, thorough, incisive and autocratic. As work with the architects on the new build in Hull moved ahead, Larkin inspected and overhauled the library's existing systems and busied himself with other functions of the university. He took the minutes for the library committee, which met five times a year. From 1958 to 1980, he was the secretary of the Hull University Press, and during that time steered more than 100 books through publication. He chaired monthly library staff meetings, which discussed everything from major library matters to the provision of soap in the lavatories. He set up the bookshop committee and a parking committee. He sat on the Senate at its twice termly meetings. He was a member of the Fine Art Committee. In all these things, he struck his colleagues as fair-minded by brisk, devising ways of accelerating a meeting towards a conclusion that he wanted to reach. Larkin's minutes were written in what his colleague Lionel Madden describes as, quote, workmanlike productions written in a cool, clear style. They demonstrate his ability to present information about his library in crisp, jargon-free prose. By the 1960s, Larkin had come to rely on the library staff for his social life. Maeve Brennan, his long-serving secretary, observed that he could be two people, one formal and reserved, the other spontaneous and amusing. This idea that he inhabited two different lives came up in a 1961 interview with the University magazine when he was asked, do you feel that you're two people reading your poetry? I get the impression that the poet thinks the librarian is, is in a rut. 
does the li- librarian want to get out of that rut? Larkin replied, I'm not two people for tax purposes. And in fact, the poet feels very grateful to the librarian. He keeps them both. By 1975, Larkin's salary had risen to £9,000 a year, but his enthusiasm for his job in Hull was fading. The national recession had severely hampered the university, as had government policy towards education. Between 1973 and 1977, costs had risen by 30%. Services were being called curtailed. 750 journals were cancelled. Rooms closed. Resources amalgamated. Fewer books than usual acquired. And 13 posts had been suspended. Throughout this time, the number of books issued by the library had risen by 30%. Larkin had known that writing, the writing was on the wall. Motion writes that Larkin's librarian day job had been the antidote to his loneliness, the loss of his mother and the self-doubt that he'd felt. The toad work, lending him its arm, had guided him through life's difficulties. As he reached his mid-fifties, he talked of retirement, but by that point, he'd grown dependent on everything that the job had given him. He died in 1985, still in his post as librarian. Any visitor to the wonderful modern university campus at Hull today can appreciate the incredible impact that Larkin has had on the university. So Chris, perhaps we can talk now about today's world and students thinking of whether or not they should consider librarianships as careers. And indeed, what is the place, given that Google is possibly the world's largest online library, what place libraries have um, in today's world. Do you want to give us some thoughts, first of all, um, on how important libraries will be in the future? Okay, so um, I think there are a number of issues here. Libraries have never been so important. Um, You know, we live in a world of spin and misinformation And libraries serve as a great storehouse of multiple opinions and perspectives. Um, It's, it's, you know, people think that you're going to find every answer on the internet. Funnily enough, uh, I was trying to find a slightly uh, off-colour advert from the 1970s. Uh, A a rather poor poem I was reviewing (laughs) reminded me of it. Um, And I just couldn't find it anywhere. It existed, but it's gone. And, uh, you know, the Internet and what's on it, social media is extraordinarily uh, ephemeral. Um, so, 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 you know, there's something uncontestable about books. The analog form uh, is durable. You think of trying to find emails you might have sent or received 20 years ago. Uh, well, we look after Anglo-Saxon manuscripts from way before that. Um, And in fact, interestingly enough, we do collect social media where we can. Uh, Websites, for example, including the website of the Philip Larkin Society, um, uh, which is is wonderful. This podcast, uh, probably. You know, the other thing, Shelley said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. I like to think the same of, uh, of librarians. And, you know, we kind of, we look after the historical record, and I, it worries me um, when we see tendencies of, of libraries to remove certain books from the shelves, uh, or for publishers to fiddle with the text to suit contemporary ideological uh, predilection. So I think there's a sort of powerful ethical uh, and moral duty that a library uh, has to, to undertake. And, you know, libraries should not carry trigger warnings. I think 
in collecting as well, particularly in the area of special collections, we need to be careful we don't turn into a, a sort of echo chamber. We need to collect across a diversity of views uh, and opinions, even if those can be uncomfortable. Um, as as for other aspects about you know the internet and tech, um, one thing Julian you di you didn't mention about Larkin in Hull is he computerized the library's finding aids. He turned all the card catalogs into what we now come to take for granted as search engines. So libraries really drove a lot of that technical innovation. Um, and, uh, you know, again, uh, Larkin was very modern. Uh, you know, he was 33 when he uh, was appointed the head librarian at Hull. That's remarkably young. Mm -hmm. um, and he understood, he understood the trends. He could see the way things were going. So, uh, and the, the, the article you draw upon in about Larkin's wonderful piece of, of work, and all credit to the author for actually drawing attention to this really important part of 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 his life and work it's um you can see sydney's influence um because his father was very effective administrator and very successful in his job and i think quite innovative as well and you can you can see that coming through in larkin certainly and i think for um students i think uh library career is a wonderful career to have. The University of Oxford and the Bodleian ha actually has a graduate trainee scheme for graduates to apply to come and, and learn on the job, as it were, before typically going off to do an MA in some branch of librarianship at, at, at a few of the universities that offer it. And I, I wish more universities offered more courses, to be honest. Because Larkin's route was really interesting, wasn't it? Because he had had no experience or qualifications or anything when he got his first job, and he did have to learn on the job. And eventually, yeah, they, did he did gain his qualifications? That's right. They took a chance on him. It suited him, and he diligently uh, got the qualifications he needed. I think so. We teach students in the library um, about the history of the book and material culture. And what I found really fascinating is that um, you know, so often students, are they approach textual analysis from a particular theoretical position and actually putting in their hands uh, an unpublished manuscript or a beautifully produced artist book gives them a jolt of the tangible. Um, it, it's... The, the material, physical qualities of a book, its, its smell, its weight, um, its technical uh, perfection, its sometimes provocative um, design, you know, is something that, that, that arrests students. Um, and I'm very keen to encourage students into this sort of career or indeed careers in the, in the book trade. Uh, well, I get to handle uh, a lot of really fascinating objects. So a great career to go into. It's quite competitive. There are all sorts of different avenues you can choose to take. Typically, people would get a, a first degree in some subject and then go on uh, to do an MA. And they might choose to be an archivist. They might choose to be a data librarian. Uh, they might uh, choose to be, if you like, a subject librarian in a big research library.
or they might go and work in the public library service, which, of course, needs all the help it can get. Um, another point of access, these amazing um, original documents that the Bodleian has and the British Museum, if a member of the public wants to, and, and these aren't in an exhibition, what process should a member of the public or a member of the Philip Larkin Society go through if they wanted to look at, and would they be allowed to look at letters... S Monica, so, so anyone can apply to look at something in the Bodleian. In fact, half of our readers are from outside Oxford, and we predate the British Library by 150 years. So we were effectively um, a national library for a long time. Um, all that we ask is that people give uh, a, a, a justifiable reason for wanting to access fragile uh, and, and rare things. They don't have to be academics. But obviously, if we allowed people to look at, you know, a particular rare book time and time and time again, uh, it's going to end up being damaged. So, so, you know, we might say, well, have you looked at this edition first? Have you looked at the digital images that we might have on our website? Mm. Um, but if people say, well, actually, no, I really need to look at this because I'm interested in the ink or... Uh, there are annotations in the in the gutter that I can't see on a digital image, or I want mm. to look at the uh, watermarks, or indeed this is something that has never been published before, and I want to publish it. We'll do all we can uh, to allow people to take a look. The um, the history centre in Hull are incredibly helpful. If you want to see, for example, the um, photograph album that we were talking about earlier today. They can bring out all kinds of uh, items from the archive for you to look at. Um, again, you just, uh, I think you just need to let them know in advance what you want to see and, um, yeah, make an appointment to come down the, and see it. The, there's, there's, no point, there's no point in a library having such wonderful things if people can't get to use them. Hmm. And um, another just point of detail on Larkin the most, or potentially, uh, arguably, the most interesting of anything that's held are the notebooks. Could you explain where the notebooks are and how they ended up where they are? Uh, I think most of them are in Hull. Uh, there's one in the British Library, which I think Larkin actually donated, I think I'm right in saying, under that, um, the Arts Council scheme, which he really instigated to, to preserve literary manuscripts. Mm. And as I recall... Yeah, as I recall, the notebook in British, I, you know, like many poets, he is dissatisfied with things. So there are all sorts of stubs, pages that have been cut out. So it's a, it's a, you know, they're wonderful things. Well, I just think, I mean, I particularly my love is is manuscripts and archives, and I sometimes think if people are people are curious about literature, curious about writers, if you're an archivist, you're getting unprecedented access into the lives of, of people and their creative motivations. Often things that haven't been published haven't been seen before. So just by the very act of organizing and cataloging a collection, you're really br bringing new knowledge to light. And I think it's a, it's a huge privilege and a, a very, very fascinating form of work for people to to get into and also great fun because if you're trying to acquire the the archive of a contemporary writer or a politician or a scientist 
Um, you're actually admitted into those people's lives. They trust you, they're candid, and you sort of become part of the historical equation yourself. And I, I often think if you, you know, some people are thinking about becoming an academic, well, that's sort of wonderful, but I, I think occasionally trying to say something new about a well-trodden road, textual road, is very, very difficult. And you say to somebody, well, just actually, why don't you work with something that's unpublished and unknown? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when uh, uh, Phil Pullen and I were in the History Centre a month or two ago, and we were looking at, we were looking at Winifred Dawson's letters, and uh, they're, they're fantastic letters, and her life is so interesting. You know, and she had this wonderful friendship with Larkin, which again, obviously started in the library at Belfast. What we'd really like to do is pair them up with the replies from Larkin because we know they they exist and but they're just in separate they're held in separate places and they haven't been you know bits of uh, Winifred's letters have been published but it hasn't been published as the conversation that it was and that's something we thought we'd really love to do as a project. It would be good and in fact we uh, have something called Digital Bodleian which is where we. Um, host digitized images of our collections and we're we're hoping to be able to move uh, into more modern material it's it's tended to be the earlier stuff and of course you have to be careful of things like copyright and and data protection but you know digitizing letters like that would be wonderful mm. and if if Hull did the other side um, then you you virtually uh, reunite them yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what we'd love to do, because there's a there's a fun, fantastic conversation going on there that has hasn't been read how it should be read, but it, it will be one day. Chris, should we? Could we ask you to um, talk a little bit about Larkin's poem, The Mower? and perhaps then um, read the poem. Yes, so before I worked at the Bodleian, I was at the British Library, and I curated an exhibition on writers and gardens in 2004. And I had long loved Philip Larkin's poetry, and it struck me that the gardens are spread throughout his, his verse. If you look for it, you, you find references absolutely everywhere. And I knew, of course, the poem The Mower, and also had always been amused by Larkin's love-hate relationship with with gardening. He would he would put on a D. H. Lawrence T-shirt to go out and and tackle the lawn. So I thought I must have some Larkin uh, in the exhibition, a and and sort of do something around the poem, uh, the mower. And this actually led me. To, I did some work with colleagues at, at Hull and found this incredible 17-month-long correspondence from 1979 uh, between Philip Larkin and the East Yorkshire Mower Company. And Larkin gets increasingly tetchy and he's furious. The mower won't work properly and uh, the shop owner comes back at him and says, you're not doing it right. You know, you're mowing when the grass is too long. You're mowing when it's wet. And Larkin starts actually keeping a record of telephone conversations on uh, library overdue 
slips. So it became a total it became a total obsession for him and I found out that he had a number of different mowers and ended up actually borrowing uh, from Hull uh, his final mower, which was the, a Blue Victor Power Plus 160cc two-stroke model um, that Monica Jones inherited, and, and it then went to Hull. And the mower in the poem, the mower, is actually an, an earlier machine and a, a, what's called a, a cylinder mower. Um, as it could only be um, from the description in the poem. So, um, and of course, a short poem uh, referencing Marvell and Hull. And, and sweet, for the exhibition, I also got hold of a photograph of a hedgehog that Larkin had, had taken. So he's not making this up. So the mower. The mower stalled twice. Kneeling, I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades, killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before, and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning I got up, and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. And that was that was written in the middle of his furious correspondence with the East Yorkshire <laughs> Mower Company, actually. 1979. It, yeah, it's interesting, that correspondence and the way you talk about it in the article. Um, is sort of battling against something that isn't really a battle because I don't think he was using that lawnmower correctly <laughs> and trying to cut the grass when it's so long. But he came up against his, his match, I think. And there was one uh, letter from the shop. Uh, I wish I could remember the, the, the name of the person, the, the writer. But, um, you know, he starts it, Dear Dr. Larking. Oh, which must must have made it absolutely <laughs> furious. No, there's a whole. I got too deeply into lawnmower history, and I I got in touch with a curator at the Lawnmower Museum called Brian Radham, who is just I'm not sure if he's still there, but the most incredible uh, source of knowledge. Uh, and I haven't I haven't been to that museum, but it's absolutely at the top of my list. <laughs> Do you want to also talk about Chris? Your, you've, I know that you've mentioned to me you've tried to look for church signing in books that might have um, evidenced a visit. Yes, from Mr. Larkin. yes. Well, I have talk a, I have a good friend, and um, he he actually did find. I forget the church, um, but he went on a hunt and he found Monica and Philip writing in the visitors' book. So I've, I've slight, I've tried to take up the. The challenge, and I'm afraid I haven't got very far. I, I found one church, uh, which I was pretty sure they must have visited, and uh, the visitors' books. They still had them from the period, but the precise pages covering the dates that Larkin and Monica would have been there had been torn out, and it did lead me to wonder whether they had written something mischievous that they shouldn't have, and that it was subsequently removed. I've also had a slightly half-hearted attempt at contacting hotels that, that Larkin stayed in. 
just to see if there are any any traces. I I like that kind of traces of ordinary history. And actually, church visitor books are completely fascinating and wonderful things. I mean, Larkin writes in, in the poem Church Going that he always writes his name in the book. Mm. Um, and I think everybody should write their name in the book. And I think we should make sure that our churches not only stay open, but that they retain these wonderful analog manuscripts that record our comings and goings. Might be a nice challenge for the, for the membership, sort of the church going <laughs> challenge. <laughs> <laughs> to try and find evidence of a Larkin visit. There is a Twitter account, I don't know if it's still running, that um, encourages people to visit churches on bikes. It's like a, it's like it's inspired by Larkin. <laughs> Larkin and Betcham, I think. Yeah. But um, most, I mean, uh, most visitor book, church visitor books, after a certain period, they go, they generally go to a local record office. But they're very touching, and sometimes the uh, comments people leave, uh, they can be very simple and commonplace. Uh, they can be very touching and very interesting. Or in Larkin's mm. case, cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> one, w one other sort of last thing from me is, we're talking about two things, a poet and a librarian. I, 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 I'm interested by the ability of someone to live their life, live two lives especially two public lives, two lives that, public lives that are accountable, that manage to sit alongside each other. And I think he does that unlike a lot of other people. He, what do you both think about that? Would you say you have to be a certain sort of person? I think there's, there's evidence that he enjoyed the routine and that was important to him. That was important to his, you know, health and his mind that he had that routine and that. I think a lot of writers work well if they don't have all the time in the world to write and uh, of course you know the toad work uh squatting on him i'm sure there were elements of that but i think i completely agree i think the routine and let's not forget the salary um you know he liked mm. his cameras he liked his jazz he liked his booze um you know the library gave a mm. a, a dependable uh, income and I think and the sociability sociability yes yes and I, I suppose the other thing is you think of poets like T.S. Eliot you know Eliot worked in a in a bank Kenneth Graham again worked in a bank and I, mm. I think there's something about the almost the separation uh, you know the, the, the creative craft is one thing and the sort of organized discipline uh, routine business of of work is is another, and uh, pe perhaps they they both require one another somehow. I definitely get a sense that he, the librarian, helps his poetry. I just when I when I saw the notebooks for the first time, and I saw how methodical he had been at writing and then scoring it out, and writing and scoring it out. I thought about the mind and the discipline and the structure. And the way, and I, and I think that made me think that this is the librarian, and and again the father, mm, the dad mm. coming down and do it better, do it again, which I think in in some creative in those kind of creative fields you don't always see. I think I mean sometimes you know people deliver a work and then it's done, and I think with Larkin, that 
the, the librarianship and the structure of the work, the toad, was something that really, really helped him, I, I felt. So now the summer is coming to an end. The Philip Larkin Society is busy planning new events for members and non-members to come along to. On December the 2nd, there will be our customary gathering as we mark the anniversary of Larkin's death. This year we'll be reflecting on the past year in the presence of the fantastic former Secretary of State Alan Johnson, who is one of our honorary Vice Presidents, as well as the new Chancellor of the University of Hull. He will be hosting a Larkin-themed pub quiz at a Hull pub for us. If you'd like to come along, then as a member you'll be automatically invited, which I think is a good enough reason to join. We are also now putting together the programme for the next PLS conference that will run at the University of Hull on March 13th to 14th, 2024. And everyone is welcome to register for a place and come along. We are very excited that another one of our HVPs, writer David Quantic, will be our keynote speaker. And if you have read any of his fiction or journalism or watched The Thick of It or Veep, then I'm sure you'll understand why this is such a coup for us. Last year's conference was an excellent event, very convivial as well as full of fascinating insights into Larkin's work, as well as that of his influences and contemporaries. Registration to attend will open later this year. If you're interested in being a speaker at the conference, then please do get in touch too. Our committee now has, for the first time ever, a real geographical spread, with trustees now based in Oxford, London, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Kent, so we're planning to put on more PLS events in the South. Watch this space for more details. Thank you for listening. And as ever, if you want to support us, please share the podcast details. Consider becoming a member of the Philip Larkin Society. Or you could even buy some of our lovely merchandise on our website. It's all very much appreciated. And thank you once again to our fantastic guests, Julian Henry and Chris Fletcher for helping us to put together such a, a lovely discussion on this fascinating topic. This podcast was produced by me, Lynn Lockwood and Gavin Hogg and the music was The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for future topics then please, as ever, do get in touch. of the morning are blowing are shining the meadow is wet with the coldest of dew the dawn reassembles